Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Let's begin our journey through the book of Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy in Greek literally means the second law. So we've had a lot of law given to us in other books of this first five books of the Bible, which are called the Pentateuch. This is going to be the pinnacle of the Pentateuch. It's going to be the crown jewel of the law. Um, We're going to have a repetition of a lot of what we have seen in Exodus and Numbers, but in its final form. This is how the Mosaic Law developed through all of the events in the life of Israel. And here at the end of Moses' life and his term of leadership, this is what the law has come to be. It's going to include several addresses by Moses, including Moses' final sermon at the very end. And so Deuteronomy becomes the final word on what those who follow the one true living God are to do, how they're to do it, and why they are to do it. Moses is going to emphasize the exclusive worship of the Lord our God and the centralization of worship. In other words, you will only worship our God and you will only worship our God in this way and at this place. The book of Deuteronomy is divided into four sections. They begin in the first verse of the first chapter, in the 44th verse of the fourth chapter, and the 29th chapter, verse 1, and the 33rd chapter, verse 1. Let's look at part one. It encompasses chapter one, verse one through chapter four, verse 43. We're going to hear about Mount Horeb in Deuteronomy. That is Deuteronomy's word for Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai seems to be the preferred term in Exodus. Mount Horeb tends to be the in the preferred term in Deuteronomy. The journey from Mount Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, so on the border of the promised land, is only an 11-day journey. But Kadesh Barnea is where the whole spy debacle happened earlier. They reach this point. God sends them, has them send spies into the land to check it out. They come back with their report, and the people won't do it. They won't go in and take the promised land. So they spend the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness and finally end up right back at Mount Horeb, where they spend a lot of this 40 years. So they're going to finally begin to make this journey back to take the promised land. Deuteronomy is going to recall really quickly here in part one, the tragedies and the triumphs of the Hebrew people. And almost always, those tragedies are going to be contributed to human error and disobedience, and the triumphs are going to be contributed to divine blessing and guidance. And this is going to mark the journey of the Hebrew people with the Lord their God, that when something good happens, it happens because of God's blessing. And when something bad happens, it happens at God's hand because of disobedience and rebellion. So tragedy is linked to disobedience and triumph is linked to obedience. So part one is going to recap the past 
And the story is going to be told in a way that pulls the present generation into the story as if they were part of the original group. The use of the words you and we in present tense makes it part of the story together. The idea is that you cannot participate in the blessings of the prior generations without also bearing responsibility for the failings of that generation as well. So it's a way of grafting everyone into the story about making this our story instead of our ancestors' story. And it's a really powerful thing to have happen. We see almost immediately that Moses has to share his leadership and administration. You cannot be a micromanager. You cannot do everything. Judges are established, and Moses affirms that the current charge for judges is the same as it has been from the beginning. That is to listen and to give a fair and just resolution to the situation. We're also going to be reminded that fidelity to God comes not through denial of sin and shortcomings, but through full acknowledgement, repentance, and forgiveness for those shortcomings. We're reminded that when the spies went into the promised land originally, they brought back a good report. It wasn't that the report was not good. It's that we were afraid of the people. So we have the offspring of Anakim, um, who is related to legendary groups like the Nephilim and the Rephaim, which were giants, large people, people beyond the normal human size that were considered undefeatable, kind of like Goliath. Three times in in this first portion, Moses is going to blame Israel for his not being able to go into the promised land. Now, if you listen carefully, you will remember that Moses is told he can't go into the promised land back in Exodus because of his temper. He loses his temper and disobeys God by striking the stone instead of speaking to it. But in chapter 1, verse 37, in chapter 3, verse 26, and in chapter 4, verse 21, Moses is going to say, and God was mad with me because of you, and so I'm not getting to go into the promised land. Um, Some people want to say this is not a deflection and a rewriting of his responsibility, that it's his way of identifying with the suffering of Israel. They all suffer together because of their disobedience. I, however, think that Moses kind of wanted to redact. He wanted to kind of revise his history in his last statement um, so that he comes off in a little bit better light. That's a human tendency that we all do. We begin to venture into chapter two, and we hear that God has given land to the descendants of Esau and Lot in a very similar way that he's giving land to the descendants of Abraham here. So the Moabites are going to be the descendants of Esau. Now, that was Jacob's elder brother. And to the Ammonites, those are the descendants of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. We also hear again how God hardens someone's heart. God hardens King Sidon's heart, much like he did Pharaoh's heart. This raises for us difficult questions about divine agency and free will. It is probably a way of saying that however people respond, it contributes to the accomplishment of God's plan. 
but it, it, it is something that we wrestle with. We also see, again, this idea of devoting the conquered, the bounty of a conquered area to God. It is totally devoted to God, which means totally destroyed. The spoils are devoted to God. And we really struggle with this idea of killing every man, woman, and child. There are no survivors here. They sometimes take some livestock or some things. Um, but this becomes really an understanding of like the fact that the Hebrew people are engaged in the accomplishment of a divine destiny and not um, conquering and warring for material gain. We struggle nowadays with this concept of divine destiny and conquering. We do it even in our own American history with the first people who settled our country and what they did to the peoples who were already here, to the indigenous peoples. Um, But it is a way of looking at what they did, that the promised land had been promised to them, and it meant they had to oust the people who were there. They chose to obliterate the people, to minimize the influence of that people and the pagan ways that they were not getting to keep the land from influencing the nation of Israel. As we move into chapter 3, we um, see a king called Og. Og is a giant. Um, He is one of these giant um, races. Um, We are told that his bed was quite large, that his bed was 13 feet by 6 feet. That's that's a pretty big fella there. We also see that the land of the Transjordan, on this side of the Jordan, goes to three of the tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, already have their lands. They've already accomplished kicking the people out of that area that they're going to have. But these three tribes are still expected to help the rest of their country take the remainder of the promised land. They are not allowed to settle down and call it done. We move then into chapter four, and we hear Moses admonishing the people, don't add or delete from this law. Keep it exactly as it is. Observe it faithfully. Don't get spiritual amnesia. Complacency is an enormous spiritual virus, and it has inherited people all the way through, or infected people all the way through human history. We receive a blessing, we take it in, we begin to take it for granted, we become complacent, and then we are at risk of losing it. And Moses says, don't do that. Tell this story, pass it on to future generations. Not just pass on the story, but pass on the faith. Remember what the Lord your God has done for us and keep that fresh. If you're wondering about the incident that happened with Baal of Peor, all you have to go back to is is Numbers chapter 25 to hear that story. Let's talk for a few minutes about the Ten Commandments. We begin to move into that in chapter 4, verse 13. In the Hebrew... What is translated to us, Ten Commandments, literally says the Ten Words. So I'm I'm very curious if the Ten Commandments were not just Ten Words that encompassed the whole idea of justice and relationships with human beings. Chapter 4, verse 24 tells us that God is a jealous God, a devouring fire. Um, It doesn't mean that God is petty and jealous 
the way we think of um, human beings being in relationships to one another. It means that God does not tolerate spiritual polygamy. You choose one God. Our God is to be our God and the only God that we have. And you have to balance that with the portrait of God we see in chapter 4, verse 31, where it says God is merciful. God is faithful. God is a covenant-keeping God. In other words, God won't break His part of the covenant. Neither should we. We should all be faithful to the covenant we make with God. We see the establishment of cities of refuge, and before we even get to the Ten Commandments proper, we see that unintentional or accidental killing is not the same thing as murder, and that we have to find a way to mitigate the escalation of revenge that is a human tendency. Um, And we are told kind of right up front, it indicates that the commandments are going to require some context, the application of reason to properly interpret and apply them. In chapter 4, verse 44, the second part of the book of Deuteronomy begins. This is Moses' second address to the people, and it occurs after the 40 years in the wilderness. So we've recapped everything up till now, and we're going to have the second address that's going to start talking about the commandments and the precepts. And those statutes and commandments and precepts are going to be delineated in chapters 12 through 26 specifically. So this just become becomes kind of our large overview. In chapter 5, we begin to move specifically into the Ten Commandments. And we see in verse 3 another example of writing the new generations into this story. The Ten Commandments have already been delineated for us in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And so I'm just going to hit a couple of high points with these. In chapter 5, verse 15, I hear a statement that basically says, you were a slave, you're not a slave anymore, don't forget that you were a slave, but stop acting like one. It's this idea that working all the time is a symbol of slavery and oppression. It is part of the brokenness of humanity, and it is a part of being enslaved. It's part of it's part of the curse of the fall is not only working, but this idea of overworking. So being a workaholic is a denial of God's authority who commands us to take a Sabbath. It ignores God's command to do so. It ignores and rejects God's blessing of downtime, of relaxation and recovery and recreation, recreation. But it's also very much a part of a loss of identity. When we have so lost who we are that we have to get all of our purpose and meaning from working, and so that's all we do all the time, it's really a very sad thing. And I I regret that the American culture has elevated and praised and rewards workaholism in the way that it does. There is no works righteousness present here. Um, There is only grateful response to God's blessing. We are told not to make idols. Um, These would be images of God. We don't want to confuse the infinite God with any finite depiction or representation. This is not about 
worshiping other gods. We've already been told not to do that. This is about not creating an image that becomes your representation of God. God is so much bigger than our comprehension or any depiction. Let's talk about wrongful use of the name of God for a second. It does not appear that we are talking here about cursing. I'm not saying that we who follow God, particularly in Jesus Christ, should um, embrace just cursing freely, but it seems to be more about exploitative use of God's name. We need to be careful for what we invoke the name of God. What if we are breaking this commandment more when we use the name of God to accumulate wealth, to manipulate and control people, to endorse particular ideologies, political agendas, um, that those things, that God is God alone and our loyalty and our allegiance belongs to God, and we should not use God's name um, to endorse lesser things other than worship and loyalty. In chapter 5, verse 14, um, that's that verse is not about ethnic slavery when it talks about how we treat our male and female servants. It's not ethnic slavery like the Israelites experienced in Egypt. It is temporary debt servitude. Israel is not supposed to have permanent slaves. When we're told to honor our father and mother, the word honor literally means to make heavy. We are to carry heavily, to strongly carry our parents in our heart. And I believe this speaks to um, how we treat people. What is the value of people? Because this is going to apply specifically to older parents who are no longer economic producers. They can't take care of themselves and somebody's going to need to care for them. So you're to honor your father and mother, take them into your house, make sure they're provided for, treat them with respect, do not cast them aside. It is a statement that God's people have a different way of relating to one another, that life and relationships are about gratitude and respect, not just about benefit and usefulness. In chapter 5, verse 18, we see the commandment not to commit adultery. Just need to comment that adultery referred to having sexual relationships with a married woman. Sexual relationships with an unmarried woman is not against the law. It's not prohibited here in the Ten Commandments. It's still not a good practice. We see that over and over, but it wouldn't have been a violation of the Mosaic law. If you were to sleep with a woman who was not married, you're then supposed to marry her because you have now stolen from her father his ability to get a good bride price for her and improve his connections with people. But adultery was considered a threat to the morale of the country. It was a serious threat. Um, You needed to know who your heirs were. You needed to know that your children were your children. Paternity was important to a patriarchal society. And to have those things be in question undermines tribal alliances and loyalty. You can't be going into war with people that you think might be sleeping with with your wife um, in that way. It, it undermined the whole fabric of trust, commitment, and loyalty upon which a civilized um, nation is founded. 
Stealing may have originally referred to kidnapping, like stealing people, um, stealing other people from other tribes, from other countries, also stealing their livestock, um, stealing things. Um, False witness refers specifically to court testimony. And then here we have another difference in chapter 5, verse 21. Coveting is divided now into coveting another spouse as well as coveting things. Makes me feel like this had come up a time or two during their 40 years in the wilderness that now we can't just say should not covet what belongs to your neighbor, but we have to say you should not covet your neighbor's spouse and you should not covet their things. And so then Moses concludes chapter 5 by just one more time giving warnings to obey, um, admonitions to be faithful to God. And so that takes us through Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 5.